MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 46 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. So, you know, it's all downhill from here, right? It is uh, Wednesday, December 1st, and I am your co-host, Andrew Torres. And I'm your other co-host, Allison Gill. And uh, we have a very special uh, (laughs) ad-free episode for you today. So if you are interested in getting these episodes ad-free... You can do that for as little as a buck an episode. Isn't that right? Yeah. Oh, that that was an incredible plug. But uh, yeah, if you head on over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod, that's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D, uh, you can uh, give us money for doing the show as a way of saying Thanks for doing the show. And uh, in return, we give you free stuff. We give you uh, the ad-free episode every uh, every week. And uh, we do some bonus stuff from time to time. But mostly, it's just a way of you saying, hey, I really appreciate that you do the show. So um, uh, we got a couple new patrons to thank this week. Yeah, we do. We have to thank some amazing new patrons who support us. Um, let's see. We thank King Calliope and Leah Margolis. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. And again, remember, you want a shout out from us, head on over patreon.com slash aisle45pod. So uh, with that out of the way, let's uh, let's get on with the show. Yes, and today we have a very special deep dive where you and I, Andrew, are going to dig in to the documents. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) So first up, we are, well, the the majority of this episode is going to be about the Bannon criminal contempt thing, right? Because the January 6th committee today announced that on Wednesday, today, uh, as when this show airs, they will be voting to hold Jeffrey Clark in contempt. They sort of leapfrogged over Meadows because Meadows probably has more considerations as far as executive privilege goes, not because he has any, just more considerations for executive privilege because, well, he was chief of staff. And as Ellie Honig said today to Wolf Blitzer, if the executive privilege laws were written for anyone, they're written for the chief of staff. But he went on to say, you know, That being said, you know, executive privilege doesn't cover what I think Meadows thinks it covers. But all of that out of the way, we're going to talk about the uh, the sort of the chronology of Bannon and uh, leading up to a document that was filed late at night on Sunday by the Department of Justice and the new U.S. attorney in the D.C. uh, U.S. attorney's office, Matthew Graves, who just got there November 5th. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh. All of that is correct. Uh, by the way, I agree with your assessment on Meadows, right? Like it, it is, you know, I mean, it's sort of typical uh, lawyer practice to, you know, go after the low hanging fruit first. And and Meadows is, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you it's sort of the double edged sword, right? Like on the one hand, all of the evidence that we have from disgruntled underlings seems to show that Mark Meadows was, you know, the the administrative person putting together, organizing one six from inside the White House, because you know that, that Trump isn't doing that himself, right? Like, uh, and and so on the one hand, very very important to get his testimony and documents. On the other hand, the White House Chief of Staff is literally the person with whom the president confers and you know tries to. Uh, uh, you know, seek advice and and for whom the idea of executive privilege. And again, if I haven't defended executive privilege on this show recently, let, let me do this right now. Um, when you have a functioning grown up president and, and admittedly, you know, that's a that's a stretch for some of our younger listeners. Um, you, you want that person 
to be able to get as much candid advice as possible. And that includes the president and or her advisors. I'm, I'm being optimistic here. Um, bouncing crazy ideas off the wall, right? Like, oh, hey, well, what if we bomb them, right? Like, and, and, and so you absolutely, so the idea of executive privilege is you, uh, everybody is as free to toss out sort of crazy ideas and then have, you know, everybody else in the room go, that's a terrible fucking idea. Let's not bomb them. Like that would, here's how massively destabilizing that would be, right? But, but like, you you want a smart executive to consider all of the options, um, and and so you know we 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 don't want to lose sight of the fact. Never minding the fact that you know what we have here is a criminal co-conspirator in Mark Meadows, um, but Bannon stuff. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, I mean, a real like quick snapshot, right? Bannon didn't show up. He didn't produce documents October seventh. Correct. Failed to show up October fourteenth. That next week, they had a vote in the committee, and then a vote in the rules committee, and then a vote in the full house to refer him to the Department of Justice. That referral went over that Friday, and then it took twenty-two days uh, for the Department of Justice to indict him. And keeping in mind, again, Matthew Graves, the D.C. U.S. attorney who just got there November 5th, thanks <laughs> to stonewalling by Senate Republicans. Gosh, I wonder why they wouldn't want people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley wouldn't want a full-throated investigation by a Biden appointee to happen in D.C. over the insurrection. <laughs> um, but he got there November 5th, and then it was seven days later that the indictment for Bannon came down. And since then, we've had a, some court filings. We've had some indictments. Well, we had the indictment. We have court filings, and we had a couple of things. You're going to go over the chronology of these filings uh, for us right now. Yeah, let's do let's do that really really quickly because this was a little bit weird, right? So the indictment was handed down uh, uh, November twelfth, as you pointed out. Um, three days later, B Bannon was arrested, right? That is the arrest warrant was returned executed on November the fifteenth, um, and then a lot of people saw uh, that a couple of days after that, um, Bannon had uh, waived his arraignment and entered a plea of not guilty and said, what's that all about, right? Um, I, I think, in fact, that was word for word, the, the you know, the text that you sent me, right? Um, and the answer is that by waiving, so waiving the arraignment, the arraignment is the thing you see on law and order all the time, right? That is the defendant walks into the courtroom uh, and says, and the judge says, the charges against you are X, uh, how do you plead? Uh, and the defendant pleads, you know, not guilty. Uh, and then the judge either says, you know, here are the conditions uh, under which I'm going to release you. I'm going to hold you without bail or I'm going to release you on your recognizance. Um, this is a misdemeanor and implausibly um, Stephen Bannon has no criminal record, uh, which, you know, <laughs> surprised me. Um, so, so I yeah. guess that thing he was pardoned for doesn't count. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, a lot of people were like, why wasn't he in jail all that weekend? Why is he not in jail? Because he's not a flight risk. He's not a flight risk. And it's and a he, misdemeanor. <laughs> and it's a misdemeanor. He doesn't have a criminal record. You don't want you, you to be treated like that. Yeah. Um, this is due process. These are federal criminal defendant rights, right? This is just this is how the court does it. Plus, if you go super hard, it's going to look political because it, it would be political at it that point. <laughs> and then there's cases for appeal and it just, just it gets dumb. He's not a flight risk because he wants all this to happen. He wants the attention and he wants to go out in front of the courthouse and say stuff like this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell, uh um, <laughs> which I think is awesomely referred to as extrajudicial activities uh, yeah. um, it reminded me of when my mom referred to my dating life in high school as extracurricular activities oh right? nice <laughs> yeah. um yeah no i think i think both of those are, are dead on so uh, uh back to the chronology uh okay so bannon waves his arraignment that just means you don't have to go through that process he didn't have to show up in court he didn't and what that really does is that avoids the perp walk right um, so, you know, it, 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 that was the benefit to him. He was always going to be released on his own personal recognizance. And so then what happens is the next day, the, the court, and this is judge Carl Nichols, you may have heard a lot made about this, that this is a Trump appointee, but this is not 
a, you know, Justin and Corey level Trump appointee who is, you know, a complete and total hack. This is somebody who, you know, has a legitimate academic and judicial and trial background, right? Like he's a real lawyer and that's going to be really important, right? Like because the kind of shit that Steve Bannon is trying to pull here, I don't know, maybe you get away with it in front of a Justin Walker type. Uh, but uh, spoiler alert, I don't think you're going to get away with it in front of a Carl Nichols type. But in any event, um, what, what he did was then... Uh, um, kind of set a preliminary scheduling order, right? And said, okay, uh, what I want is I want uh, the government and the defendant to confer and give us a joint status report on December 6th, okay? Um, and this is, again, I'm a civil practitioner, uh, but this is totally commonplace in all sorts of cases, right? It is to say uh, you order both lawyers, you know, from both sides to kind of get together and tell the court what they can agree on, what they can't agree to agree on, right? You know, it just it just defines kind of what the what the issues are for the judge. Um, and then there will be a status conference the next day, uh, December 7th. Okay. Um, and and that led well, it, it actually uh, overlapped with uh, the government's uh, motion uh, for a protective order, right? And again, this is a 100% commonplace thing to do. Um, and, and, and what it means is, um, as a criminal defendant, you are entitled to discovery from the government. In fact, you are entitled to a pretty aggressive form of discovery, right? You are entitled not only to everything you ask for, uh, but as you've talked about on the Daily Beans at, at great length, right? The government has a Brady versus Maryland obligation that if they uncover uh, exculpatory evidence, they are required to turn that over to you, even if you don't ask. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so and and again, and I, and I love that you kind of did this in the intro. Um, these are really, really important things, and they apply even to scumbags like Steve Bannon, who are, you know, flagrantly violating the law. And we don't want to to weaken those. Right. Like, like it's the other side that wants to weaken the protections for criminal defendants. So um, so he's entitled to discovery. And as a result of that, uh, typically what the government says is, OK, look, we're going to turn everything over to you. Uh, but before we do that, we have to get your agreement as to what stuff you can disclose in public and what stuff you can't disclose in public. And that's what a protective order is. Um, and and again, I want to tell you, this is 100% commonplace in every single case. Uh, and it doesn't wind up being a matter that's litigated, um, except here. Usually, yeah. <laughs> Usually. Yeah, generally criminals don't want all their evidence uh, put out to the public. Um, but, you know, in, in these particular cases, and Alex Jones did this too. He said he would sit before the January 6th committee, but only if it were a public testimony. Um, and, and that's a carnival, chaos atmosphere. And so it, it makes total sense that the government would file for protective order here because there's all sorts of things that I'm going to go over when we get to the government's opposition <laughs> to Bannon's opposition. Uh, and so I'll save I'll save those considerations for for when when I go through that document line by line. Yeah. So the first thing that was filed was filed on the 17th. Like I said, it, it overlapped with the scheduling order, right? The the uh, AUSA's office was like, OK, great. Uh, you've waived uh, arraignment. You've pled not guilty. Um, it's our turn to start uh, turning documents over to you. Uh, but uh, before we do that, you have to abide by certain conditions. Um, and they, the Bannon, we're about to get to it, makes a lot of the fact that the um, that the actual protective order is, he calls it four pages versus two pages. It's really three and a half pages, right? Um, and and I will tell you, you know, as a lawyer who writes stuff, like writing a protective order in three and a half pages is boilerplate, right? Like that is as bare bones as you get. I've written a protective order that's 30 pages long before, right? <laughs> and, and again, if you've done any litigating, you know that, right? So- Justin Walker doesn't know this, but Carl Nichols knows uh, that this is, you know, totally stock motion, totally stock proposed uh, 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 protective order. And, and it includes um, 
paragraphs that that define sensitive materials. And those definitions are taken from Rule 49.1 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And it says, hey, the United States may produce materials containing personal identifying information, that is, sensitive materials, uh, to defense counsel, except as provided in the order, um, without prior notice to the United States and authorization by the court, no sensitive materials or the content that that's contained in there can be disclosed to anybody other than the defendant, defense counsel, persons employed to assist the defense, or the person to whom the sensitive information solely and directly pertains. Right. So this is very typical in that basically they're just asking for things to be filed under seal that by law have to be filed under seal. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of how it how it plays out in the uh, <laughs> in what Matthew Graves turned in on Sunday, <laughs> which is which is really good. And, and and boy, like I know we're we're building this up, like you know, it's uh, we're working to the like eighth day of Hanukkah, but uh, it's but now Bannon says there's prejudicial claims I, or something I, that he has, it, right? It's it's bonkers, right? And so it, it, you know. <laughs> Let me let me let me make the best kind of set up the best Bannon argument so that we can knock it down. Um, paragraph 10 of the sensitive materials portion says sensitive materials must be maintained in the custody and control of defense counsel. Defense counsel may show sensitive materials to the defendant as necessary to assist in preparation of the defense. Uh, but defense counsel may not provide a copy of sensitive materials to the defendant. Moreover, if defense counsel does show sensitive materials to the defendant, defense counsel may not allow the defendant to write down any personal identifying information as identified in Rule 49.1 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure that is contained in the sensitive materials. If the defendant takes notes regarding sensitive materials, defense counsel must inspect those notes to ensure that the defendant has not copied down personal identifying information as identified in Rule 49.1 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And, and, and the important thing about that is... Um, that that the government has a duty to those over whom it maintains confidential information to keep that confidential. And that means not giving it to Steve Bannon so he can broadcast it on his stupid podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and, also, yeah, I, and it also means like, hey, just because we want to file this stuff under seal under protective order doesn't mean you can't show it to your client. You, you, you definitely can. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course you can. Right. The, 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 that point about control has to do with the fact that criminal defendants are not subject to the legal rules of ethics. Right. So the court has more control over a lawyer than it does over a criminal defendant. Right. Like if I'm yeah. a criminal defendant, I'm not allowed to perjure myself. Right. Um, but but as a lawyer, I have higher affirmative obligations in court. And that's why, you know, you you want uh, the you know, so, for example, uh, I, I can't perjure myself, but I can give super misleading testimony if I'm just an ordinary criminal defendant. Right. Criminal defendants do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the if you put it in the hands of the lawyer, right, then I, as opposing counsel, can be like, yeah, you're an officer of the court. You have a duty of candor uh, not to misrepresent what you've done. What have you done with the documents? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just to be clear, right, like th- this is what we're talking about under Rule 49.1. The only things that we're talking about are filings with the court that contain an individual's social security number, right, birth date name of a minor, financial account numbers, uh, home address, right? Um, Those sorts of things uh, you have to redact out uh, and you can only disclose the last four of the social security number or taxpayer identification number, the year of the individual's birth, the minor's initials, um, or the city and state of the home address, right? That's all we're talking about, right? not revealing social security numbers. So you and I were both rather surprised mm-hmm. um, when <laughs> when last week on uh, Wednesday, uh, uh, November 24th, um, Steve, Steve Bannon uh, decided, you know, right before the, the Thanksgiving holiday in the evening, uh, decided that um, he was going to oppose <laughs> the government's motion for protective order uh, and to disclose grand jury testimony. Um, and the argument is 
that the government's proposed order goes far beyond its burdensome and restrictive procedures that would apply to all materials. The proposed order would give the government sweeping authority to designate materials as sensitive materials once they're stamped, why that's in quote, I have no idea, by the government as sensitive, their use would be severely restricted in, in the way that we just talked about, right? You could only share sensitive materials with the defendant, defense counsel, persons employed to assist the defense or the person to whom the sensitive information solely and directly pertains. Um, and, 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 and like I said, they make a big deal out of the fact that, you know, the initial motion was two pages long, uh, but the protective order is, is four pages long. Um, and, and again, the reason for that is because, you know, that this is boilerplate. Um, the, the argument here is, uh, to the extent that you could make one, <laughs> Mr. Bannon's right to a fair trial would be prejudiced by the government's proposed protective order because the Sixth Amendment guarantees any accused person important rights that would be impaired. It provides uh, that the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. Okay, that's probably not an issue. By an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, uh, they want to taint that, so that's probably not an issue. Uh, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law? That's nothing. Uh, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. Okay, he's waived that. To be confronted with the witnesses against him. Okay, that's going to happen. To have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor. Okay, he's got that. Uh, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Uh, are you really arguing that like this is impairing uh, defense counsel's ability to assist Bannon and get witnesses in his favor? Uh, yes, in fact, they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, how is that? Uh, it's not clear. It says... We need not speculate as to whether the protective order would would interfere with Bennett's defense. (laughs) If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) It says, you know, the government has already listed numerous documents that defense counsel would surely want to share with a prospective witness and which would be essential to the defense case. Some of these documents are already in the possession of the defense through other means. Put a pin in that. Yet the government's proposed (laughs) protective order, there is the specter that the defense counsel might be in jeopardy of violating a judicial order by using these documents in preparing a defense. And you're damn right you would be, right? It it, it is, you cannot take private documents that the government has and then give them to your witnesses to coach your witnesses so that their testimony conforms to what the government document says. And literally, that's the prejudice to which they are complaining. Quote, this creates a chilling effect that would hamper the the defense. It would establish a discovery process in this case, likely to lead to disputes over the designation of documents, which might require resolution by this court. I like that one thrown in there because courts hate discovery disputes. So it's Mm -hmm. like we have this real high minded reason. uh, But we also have, you know, your honor, like you're going to be answering a lot of motions to come out. Do you really want to deal with that? Like, you know. This is this would be hard work. And, you know, Mm. (laughs) so we have both the high road and the low road. Uh, So I I was a little surprised to see this document get filed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Me, too. And and now, if I may, can can we talk about the uh, government's response to this document? (laughs) Well, that leads up to we've been saving the best for last uh, and. And I know you have been living inside this, uh, you know, <laughs> nine nine page document from Matthew Graves. That's just uh, it. It I I love. There's nothing I love more than a well written document, and uh, it's good. It basically good. says, "I'm on to you, dickbag." Signed <laughs> Matthew Graves. Um, it opens up saying, "Defendant Bannon's opposition to the protective order is misleading." Period. <laughs> It makes erroneous claims about the discovery the government provided in the limited subset designated as sensitive, levies exaggerated assertions about the standard protective order's impact on his fair trial rights, and opposes the order wholesale with no justification, period. Moreover, had the defense responded to the government's efforts to confer (laughs) regarding a protective order as the defense suggested to the court, it would... At the November 18th status conference, the government would have agreed to a clarified order expressly excluding any public source records and records the defendant possesses through independent means. Put yeah. a pin in that. Is that yeah. the pin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time to take that pin out and connect those up. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real bad look. Like, it, it, And we've talked about this before. Um, 
you know, in a variety of, of, of legal documents. Um, but, but if you know that this is going to be the response, like you have an obligation to, to front load that to the judge. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the initial two page, uh, motion for protective order says the United States reached out to counsel for the defendant on Monday, November 15th uh, for the defendant's position with respect to filing protective, uh, the, the proposed protective order. Counsel was still considering the proposed order as of the time of this filing two days later. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, USAO says, um, uh, Hey, look, uh, we reached out a couple days ago um, because, you know, again, usually you don't move for these things. They're just agreed upon. Right. Um, or where you you file a joint consent motion for the court to sign off on. Right. That says, hey, the parties have conferred. This is the protective order that's going to be entered in the case. We all agree. Right. Yeah. And we've seen that a million times. Yep. Uh, and here here, Matthew <laughs> Graves says the defense's misleading claims, failure to confer unexplained wholesale opposition and extrajudicial statements make clear the defense's real purpose to abuse criminal discovery, to try this case in the media rather than in court, to safeguard witness privacy and the integrity of these proceedings. The court should reject the defendant's opposition and enter the attached clarified protective order, which we've already written for you conveniently. Right, right. <laughs> then it goes into the background, a lot of which we've talked about with, you know, the you know questions to confer. Defense counsel didn't respond on a request to confer. On November 18th, the court had the status hearing, um, and the counsel, again, did not state the wholesale objection to the protective order. It's instead expressed an intention to confer further with the government, stating, quote, with regard, obviously, to grand jury testimony, I think we're going to be able to reach an agreement with the government and come to a common position that we'll be able to file. That's what they said in court on November 18th. <laughs> Notably, defense counsel also suggested a desire to make public the discovery in this case, stating, we want to make sure that any documents that are important to the determination of this matter be public, beyond the public record. Uh, yeah, now, and, and you, you skipped over. I thought for sure you were going to uh, uh, I talk I wanted to leave the, this for you. Oh, uh, the juicy quote from CNN where, mm-hmm. <laughs> where mm-hmm. it says, but by the way, as context to understanding what they mean by uh, we want these documents to be public, um, let's talk about the defendant and his counsel gathered the press outside of the courthouse upon his release from custody and made a five minute statement about the pending charges. In their statement, counsel for the defendant first characterized the pending criminal case, stating this thing was a scam from the beginning. Later in the press conference, the defendant Steve Bannon, and you you quoted this earlier in the show, asserted that he would make this case the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. And we're going to go on the offense on this and stand by I'm a media mm. member. And I, I love the. I love how dry the sentence is. Uh, it, it, it really excellent legal writing. When a media member asked the defendant what he meant by his statement that he was going on offense, the defendant stated only, stand by. <laughs> yeah, kind of like a sort of reminds me of stand back and stand by. And, you know, later that day, it says here, and this gives you a kind of an idea of why perhaps the Bannon indictment took 22 days. Later that day, the government provided discovery to the defendant comprising 65 documents and collectively containing approximately 1,092 pages of information. The production consisted of approximately six categories of information, grand jury material, which is secret, law enforcement reports of witness interviews, internal communications between select committee staff, correspondence between the defendant and others, law enforcement database database information relating to the defendant, and public source news reporting that the government gathered in the investigation. And with this discovery, the government provided a detailed log, attachment two, which is under seal here, indexing the material and designating certain material as sensitive pursuant to the proposed protective order it filed with the court on November 17th. And then... It goes on to say on November 24th, without any attempt to confer further with the government like they said they would, the defendant filed his opposition, which you just went over. And that is exactly, you know, goes on to that quote that you're talking about, the the Washington Post quote, asserting members of the public should make their own independent judgment as to whether the Department of Justice is committed to a just result (laughs) based upon the facts. Um. And and then, of course, the statement further claimed the defendant's opposition asked the judge to follow the normal process and allow unfettered access 
and use of the documents. Uh, so <laughs> your normal process is not releasing grand jury testimony, <laughs> no, by the way. No, and he covers that. And I love the way he's like, oh, and by the way, this is the normal process. Um, so the argument here to obtain a protective order, the proponent must establish good cause based on particularized specific showing. And then they, they you know, cite case law here, noting discovery rules are a matter of legislative grace and litigants have no inherent rights to disseminate what they only obtain through the discovery process. And he says, given the defendant's demonstrated intention to share discovery <laughs> materials widely and publicly to go on offense, good cause exists for the modified protective order here. Yeah, you know, I, I I couldn't help but think about like when you and I were were talking about the various Concord litigation matters, right? That were collateral to the uh, uh, to to the Mueller investigation, and you know what you saw in that case were was ultimately the government dropping its case against Concord uh, because. It was as as a Russian asset. It was immediately taking materials turned over to it during discovery, violating the protective order and releasing those materials. Right. Like essentially weaponizing our system of of judicial process. And I I wonder to what extent like the the courts are kind of on to that, you know, that the, the idea that. Um, th- these are, are, are not good faith actors, uh, who, you know, are, are playing by the rules like, you know, like you and I and like Judge Nichols, right? These are, these are bad faith actors. Yeah. And who's to say that whole Concord management thing wasn't Bannon's idea? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. We, I, <laughs> hey, why don't you guys weaponize this shit? I'm about to. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> could be. Uh, he, Graves goes on to say with the clarification that the protective order doesn't apply to the stuff you put a pin in, Andrew, right, publicly right. available information or other documents you already have. The proposed protective order narrow is narrowly tailored to protect sensitive witness and grand jury information, stuff that's protected by law already. The material the government has produced aside from public records or communications to which the defendant was a party consists of grand jury testimonials and exhibits, law enforcement reports of witness interviews, internal select committee communications between staff, none of whom regularly carry out their communications or duties in public. <laughs> and then he says the important part here, specific harms will result if circulation of these materials is not limited to Bannon and his lawyers. First, the defendant has indicated he intends to publicly disseminate the materials for an improper purpose, to make extrajudicial arguments about the merits of the case pending against him and the validity of the government's decision to seek an indictment. Contrary to what the defendant told the Post, allowing unfettered public access to discovery materials, regardless of their use or relevance to public judicial proceedings, is not the quote-unquote normal (laughs) process. It is the opposite of normal. Period. Uh, uh, I I love. That. I mean, just so <laughs> concise. Just uh, 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 lawyer to lawyer. I'm uh, I'm a little bit jealous of that. <laughs> this is the opposite of normal. Um, it it's true, right? Like the the reason that you don't disclose all of that information to all of the parties, right, is because it, it can it can corrupt two things, right? Like it can corrupt other witness testimony that you would otherwise be able to impeach, right? Like if they know exactly what it is that the government has, they can tailor their testimony. That means lie, right? In such a way as to be consistent with what it has. And the second thing is um, you can taint the jury pool, right? Yeah. Like, and he yeah. says that, right? He says the, the restraining and release of discovery before it's made serves important public and judicial interests. And he quotes uh, Gentile v. State Bar of Nevada and says the outcome of a criminal trial is to be decided by impartial jurors who know as little as possible of the case based on material admitted into evidence before them in a court proceeding. Extrajudicial comments on or discussion of evidence which might never have been admitted at trial obviously threaten to undermine this basic tenet. Uh, and they say tenant. It's tenant. I know, yeah, <laughs> like George, not like a, <laughs> yeah. not like an occupant. Yeah. <laughs> and then they talk about the SCOTUS emphasis that courts have an obligation to avoid a carnival atmosphere that might accompany a case that has a lot of public interest like this one. And he says accordingly, a protective order to preclude the defendant from using non-public information is warranted, right? Yep. Second thing, second harm, like you said, allowing the defendant to publicly disseminate reports of witness statements will have the collateral effect of witness tampering. And he just says it 
yep. witness tampering because it will expose witnesses to public commentary. It could endanger people, right, especially in the Trump world, uh, on their potential testimony before trial and allow other witnesses, like you said, to review summaries of other witnesses' statements uh, recounting the same event or events, which is, you know, lawyers speak for they're going to try to get their story straight before trial. And moreover, he continues, the reports of interviews include personal background information about the witnesses that is unrelated to pending charges. And the defendant's threat of going on offense and making this case hell cannot be ignored when considering these witnesses' privacy interests and their personal background information. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is just, I, I mean, the bottom line is, this is not the kind of fight you want to pick uh, unless you have very, very good evidence uh, and good facts on your side. Um, and they have the opposite of that here. Um, it, it is it is really clear. I mean, I don't often say, you know, I am 99% confident, you know, like like anything can go any direction in a trial, right? Um, I am as confident as I am about anything uh, that, uh, that that what's going to happen here is uh, in in form roughly similar to what uh, Graves has attached as Exhibit 1 here to their reply to Bannon's opposition for the entry of a protective order. The court is going to grant the, the, the government's motion for protective order. It's going to enter something that protects the, the security uh, of, of grand jury testimony. And remember, by the way, like the, the Republicans were team sanctity of grand jury testimony when it came to the Mueller investigation. Right. Like that was the one thing that was sacrosanct that, you know, necessitated redacting 10 percent of the Mueller report. Um you can't possibly reveal grand jury testimony out to the public. Um, mm -hmm. That 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 position is, and 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 we didn't dispute that, right? Like when we were talking about, it, we said, well, you know, maybe it's overly, you know, broadly applied here. I would sure like to see some independent review, uh, but in general, like that that's true. Again, for the same reasons, right? Like yeah, you, and Judge you, Walton did that. He went yeah. through it line by line and found that a lot of it was inappropriate, and that's been released <laughs> in the BuzzFeed case. Yep, yep. Um and you know he does a real good job here um of 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 dismantling his two arguments. Yeah. Um you know he says the defendant's claims are false about the protective order because first the, this is the only sensitive material we're talking about is like you said Andrew PII and grand jury material. Yep. Uh, and and I, then and I read you PII, right? That is social security numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And second, the complaint about sensitivity designation for one set of materials is misleading because he fails to tell the court, uh, with, you know, that he already has these. <laughs> so they don't really <laughs> fall under that. But in any event, he says, quote, in any event, the defendant's claim of prejudice establishes no prejudice at all. <laughs> he makes a conclusory assertion that having to seek court authorization to share grand jury material and PII beyond those individuals outlined will somehow reveal a roadmap of the defense case to the government. <laughs> so it's uh, it's he completely takes that entire argument apart and then and then he says the misleading and frivolous nature of the defendant's claims of prejudice demonstrate that they are just a cover for the real reason the defendant opposes a protective order in this case and which he and his counsel have expressed in their extrajudicial statements <laughs> that the defendant wishes to have a trial through the press and courts consistently reject such a desire as a basis to refuse a protective order um and then they and this is one of my favorite citations here it's the u.s v lind yeah <laughs> um, from 2002, the defendant has no constitutional right to use the media to influence public opinion concerning his case so as to gain an advantage at trial. And then addresses the Sixth Amendment bullshit by saying no such right inheres either the Sixth Amendment right to a public trial or the public's First Amendment right for a free press. Given that defendant has no constitutional right to use the media for this purpose, his argument that a protective order would impede such a right is entirely unconvincing. And the yeah. court should similarly reject <laughs> here. And and again, you know, this is an area where, you know, we've we've talked about, right, courts imposing gag orders courts kicking everybody out of the courtroom because of a carnival like atmosphere courts imposing a media blackout right like 
These are all things that we see courts do all the time in an effort to protect what, what those judges believe is the sanctity of the trial process, right? Now, all of those things run contrary to the First Amendment, right? Like, you couldn't have other government hearings in which the chairperson would just be like, well... I feel like kicking out the media for today, right? Like, I feel like imposing a gag order on members of Congress that says that they can't talk about X, Y, Z, right? Like, that would be crazy. But in the context of a trial, that is where historically for 250 years almost we have set uh, the, the the balance, right? Like we've said, hey, um, the, the balance is strongly in favor of the integrity of the process. And by the way, like the integrity of the process here, you know, this is a defense motion. Um, but 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 the potential that the overwhelming potential for abuse is abuse at the hands of, of prosecutors. Right. Like mm-hmm. like these rules are put into place by and large to preserve a system that is meant to preserve fairness to the individual criminal defendant, right? Like that is, and, and, you know, think about sort of the classic example of that, that there is, you know, um, let's suppose a defendant has, you know, been coerced into writing a full confession, right? Mm -hmm. You would exclude not only that confession, uh, but if it was, you know, sort of truly coerced and they couldn't connect it up through, uh, you know, independent uh, uh, avenues of, of, of research, right? you would suppress the fruit of the poisonous tree, right? So you wouldn't be able to ask that criminal defendant about anything, any information that they solely got from that confession. Well, now leak that confession to the public, right? And have the potential jury pool understand, oh yeah, well, this guy, you know, not only said that he did it, but like gave them detailed directions to where the body was buried and turned over a spade that had the victim's blood on it and his fingerprint on it and all, right? Like all of that is the stuff that the exclusionary rule is meant to keep out. Um, You get a different presentation that is designed to protect the the criminal defendant and their constitutional rights at trial. Well, none of that matters if everybody already knows it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So these are really important principles. And again, you know, just sort of goes to show you that um, uh, Trump and his cronies are still dedicated to, you know, bringing down democracy even when they're out of office. So. Yeah, it's all part of that innocent until proven guilty thing that's so hard to get around in this country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, rightfully so. We have to think of, how, you know, what if it was me? Yeah. Um, or what if it was a, an innocent criminal defendant uh, that was being wrongly charged, wrongly accused? Um, and and you don't want to lower the bar for everyone else. You want to raise the bar for, for them. Uh, if, you know, because in the two systems of justice battle, we don't want to lower the system of justice that favors, uh, uh, you know, not rightfully favors, you know, maybe the rich or wealthy. Uh, you don't want to lower that bar. You want to raise the other bar. Exactly right. Um, all right. Hey, no commercials this time. So uh, <laughs> guess what? It's time for our favorite segment. Woo! Comings and goings, where we detail all the hard personnel work the Biden administration has undertaken to root out Trump's cronies and replace them with people, you know, who actually want to do the job and an office that's not run by John McEntee. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's uh, the, the examples abound. Uh, how about uh, appointing, uh, uh, you know, a uh, Perry to uh, head one of the organizations he decided the government should abolish. Right. Like, I, I mean, you know, how about, how about appointing a, a, a stalwart opponent of public education to be secretary of education? Anyway. Uh, yes. Where we don't put dingoes <laughs> in charge of babies. Yes. That's what we're doing today. I love it. I love it. So, so despite the holiday, Biden White House continued to do work. So as we record this, uh, President Biden announced his intent to nominate Shalanda Young as director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, uh, and Nani Coloretti as deputy director. Uh, Young, of course, is the replacement for the Neera Tandon nomination, whose nomination, I, like, I got to tell you, I followed this, but I, it, like, it seemed to have been sunk by a weird coalition of, like, conservatives who argued that Neera Tandon was a socialist, uh, Bernie supporters who argued that she was a centrist, and people she was mean to on Twitter, 
Um, so I guess that means you and I will never be director of OMB. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, and although we'll no doubt see ridiculous gamesmanship from the McConnell and Cruz obstruction party, it, it's worth noting both Young and Coloretti have been confirmed by the Senate in the recent past. Young was confirmed as deputy director by the Senate in a bipartisan 63 to 37 vote. Yep. In March of 2021, and has served as acting director since her confirmation. And Coloretti was confirmed by the Senate 68 to 28 in 2014 by the Deputy Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Yep, and 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 so uh, non-controversial con- confirmed recently, and in what is becoming almost commonplace in the Biden administration, both would be historic firsts. Shalanda Young would be the first black woman to lead OMB. Um, And Coloretti would be one of the highest ranking Asian American, Native Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders serving in the in the government. So, you know, we beat this drum every week. uh, But uh, but this is what a real commitment to diversity looks like. Yeah, but unfortunately, neither are qualified. Uh, No, that's completely untrue. We don't need to tell you both are eminently qualified. Uh, As I just said, uh, Young is currently acting director of the OMB, where she serves as a senior advisor to Biden. Previously, Young served as a clerk and staff director in the House Appropriations Committee, where she oversaw the $1.3 trillion annual appropriations bill, necessary disaster aid, and major aspects of COVID-19 related spending. She also served as the deputy staff director, professional staff member, and other roles on that committee. Yeah, so, you know, capable of scoring trillion-dollar legislation. I, yeah. Uh, same is true for Nani Coloretti, uh, who uh, she was smart enough to have spent the Trump years uh, outside of government. She was with the uh, Urban Institute, which is an independent uh, left leaning policy research think tank. Right. Um, their mission is uh, dedicated to using evidence, insight and analysis to advance upward mobility, equity and shared prosperity for all Americans. Um, she just had I, like I'm not going to go through her CV because it is a wealth of prior service at both the the uh, federal government and at the state level. So, you know, we'd hit the highlights, I guess. <laughs> yeah, her, her she she did quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, her federal government service includes Deputy Secretary of U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, mm-hmm. um, where she did not buy a new dining room door for $30,000. Assistant <laughs> Secretary for Management and Acting CFO of U.S. Department of Treasury and Acting COO of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yep. And and at the state level prior to so all of that was after she joined the Obama administration in 2009. Prior to that, she was the policy and budget director for then San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom working on the city budget. Right. Uh, Fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, strategic advisor to government executives with the Partnership for Public Services um, and has received numerous awards. uh, The UC Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy Special Award for Policy Innovation, the Public Policy and International Affairs Alumni Achievement Award, the National Public Service Award. You know, so this is somebody that uh, has has made a career of outstanding distinction in budgets, which like that that's an accomplishment in and of itself. Uh, and also, I think, pretty much qualifies you to be uh, deputy secretary for uh, for OMB. Yeah, or anything, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and before we get out of here, I just have one little good news note, a little cleanup Ooh. note. The Biden administration called last Friday for oil and gas companies to pay more to drill for oil and gas on public lands arguing taxpayers are being shortchanged by low rates that have stayed stagnant for more than a century. (laughs) The the public lands and the like strategic petroleum reserve stuff is um, it it is just like I've I've delved into some of those laws and like the leasing requirements are arcane and insane at the same time. And (laughs) yeah. yeah, nearly 27 million acres of land overseen by the Federal Bureau of Land Management are currently under lease by oil and gas companies who have drilled more than 96,000 wells and continue to bid on more. And since the leasing program was put into place in 1920, the royalty rate of 12.5% has never been I, raised. Yeah, it, it, I, that would be very, very good policy. And I, I just want to jump in and, you know, look, you and I are pro-green and anti-fossil fuels. Um, and so some people have asked kind of the question about uh you know, well, why dip into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and why, like, in- allow additional drilling? You know, why not just have a moratorium? And and, and the answers are as follows, right? Well, can I just, I mean, isn't that what it's for? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yes. And, like, when when prices are high in the winter, 
Um, that means people in the Northeast will die, yeah. right? And uh, we have a couple of programs. Uh, we have LIHEAP, the Low Income uh, Heating and, and Petroleum uh, something. I, I forget exactly what the end of it stands for. Uh, that that gets some money out to pay uh, home heating bills, uh, particularly in, in the bitter cold of the Northeast. Um, but it is way underfunded, uh, does not hit enough homes. And so, you know, this is not a like knee jerk, like well, gas is $4 a gallon. So blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, the, the as we transition our economy, um, you know, saying, hey, uh, you know, <laughs> So, sorry, we're not going to release this because we're committed to the new, the Green New Deal, but I'm sure your kids will thank us. Um, yeah. Is not not a great policy. Like it's 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 really critical. It is. It is. Well, this has been fun. I love going over these Bannon documents. Uh, I uh, my my prediction is that this judge, even though it's a Trump appointee, will grant the protective order. I mean, it's the normal, you know, that's business as usual uh, for the courts uh, and. Uh, uh, by the time this airs, we will have had the hearings in the National Archives Trump privilege <laughs> thing, uh, which is in the future for us right now, but in the past for people listening. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of that. I am 100% certain that the three-judge panel will find four uh, for the Biden administration in all of its forms, whether it's the National Archives, the DOJ, the House, or you know. Uh, so it, we'll it, see that then, and and we'll report it as it happens. Well, and as you saw, I uh, I tweeted out from the Open Args uh, uh, Twitter account. Um, to me, I agree with everything you've said a hundred percent. I think what the D.C. Circuit is trying to do is Supreme Court proof their opinion, right? And they are desperately cognizant of the hacks and morons on the Supreme Court. And so they are looking for the surest way uh, to, to you know, to come up with the, the, the best ruling possible. And to that end, right, they requested independent uh, uh, preparation on a question of standing yeah. and look like if they're able to kick. And, and again, it's a tough argument. We don't have, you know, we're out of time on the show, so I, we definitely don't have time to break it down. Um, but but if they kick this out on standing, right, that's a good way to sort of encourage the Supreme Court. Hey, look, this, they don't even have standing. There's no reason it would be unprecedented for the Supreme Court to issue an administrative stay uh, and 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 on grant cert on something yeah. like that. Yeah. So they're playing around with a lot of stuff. We'll we will see. Uh, but yeah, that's that's going to occupy a lot of my uh brain power yesterday slash tomorrow <laughs> it's gonna be interesting thanks so much this has been great everybody thanks to you and again thanks to our patrons uh you help make this show possible we hope you enjoyed this special holiday ad free version uh, if you want to continue to get these episodes ad free you can do that by becoming a patron you know where to go uh by now uh thank you andrew this has been great i've been allison gill i'm andrew torres this is clean up on aisle 45 Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.